Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, what's going on? Not so much, Steve. Uh, another day, another episode of the Growth Equation Podcast. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, anytime I get to sit down and have a nice hour-long discussion with you, Brad, it's a great day. Well, I'm glad to make your day so great, Steve. For listeners that want to um, support the show and help keep us 100% independent, member-supported, the best way to do so is to join our Patreon community. That's at www.patreon.com slash thegrowthequation. For as little as $5 a month, y'all get super neat stuff, guides to resilience and peak performance, a monthly book club where we bring in best-selling authors for live Zoom Q&As. Um, at the $10 and $20 support level, you get signed copies of our books, a quarterly mastermind group. We actually just had one this past weekend. So we're really trying to provide you all a lot of value and to be able to continue to produce this podcast at a good enough level um, without sponsorship. And today we're talking about good enough. So Steve, why don't you tee up today's topic? Man, that was a smooth transition there, Brad. You're getting good at this podcast game. Today, today we're talking all about being good enough, which is consistency. It is consistent to, to great, right? How to play the long game stay in it so that your performance gradually rises over time. Often we seek the shortcut, the heroic effort, the let's make it to the top of the mountain as fast as we can, but that often backfires. And what we're going to talk about today is all about consistency and how to achieve that consistency. So let's first define what we see to be the biggest obstacle or barrier to consistency. And this very much ties into last week's podcast on goals. I think that very often people will get inspired and motivated and super excited to go out and try to accomplish something. And they'll do too much too soon, too often, and then very quickly burn out or suffer from physical, emotional injury. So this is the case of somebody that might get funding for their company or might have their first article published and they just go all in and they think that they're running an 800 or mile race, but what they don't realize is that they're actually running an ultra marathon. And if you go out in an ultra marathon at one mile pace, you are in for a very rude awakening come mile 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. So particularly around this time of year, New Year's, or just following New Year's, there's a lot of um, transform your life, crush it, a lot of energy. And it's good to have that energy, but you've got to show a fair amount of restraint to say consistent. So problem number one, I think, going too hard, too much, too soon. And then problem number two is when observable progress is not what you'd hope it would be. So I think that we should address both of these and then talk about their flip sides, which is a proper way to think about consistency. Um, How does that sound? 
Sounds like a plan. All right. So I'll talk about problem number one for a bit. Um, I think that the main thing here is to stop one rep short, or at least adopt the mindset of stopping one rep short. So in the athletics world, what this means is that if you're doing repeats on the track or repetitions in the weight room or laps in the pool or intervals on the bike, let's say that you could technically do 10 without losing your form. It's really wise to show restraint and stop at about eight or nine. Now, why is this? Because by going to 10, A, you increase your chance of injury, and B, it takes a lot of psychic energy to go to that edge and stay there and to try to do that regularly. Now, the challenge of showing restraint and stopping one rep short is that any given day, any given training session doesn't feel as fatiguing as you expect it to feel as you'd like it to feel. But the accumulated fatigue over weeks, months, years, even decades is extremely high. And that accumulated fatigue is what transfers into fitness. So I love to take this approach and think about it in terms of all our big life projects. What does it look like to stop one rep short? And how do you then have the restraint to do so? Because it feels really good to pull that all nighter or to just totally drain yourself but that's not a recipe for sustainable progress. Yeah, no, you're spot on. I mean, this is like coaching, coaching 101, right? It's, <laughs> it's something that's been ingrained in my head since I was a run, since I started running and in coaches heads for decades, because it's so valuable, right? And stopping run rep short is one way to deal with the first problem that you that you outlined there. I think another way to deal with some of the issues you outlined is something kind of related to what we talked about in the goals podcast, which is accept where you are. Don't use that motivation, fire, whatever, to go to set too high of expectations, to set too high of a standard so that when you start that ultra marathon, you start off too fast and you burn out and you quit because it's too difficult. I think if you if you're realistic with yourself and say, this is where I'm at, this is what is challenging, I'm going to try and go just beyond my current capacity. That allows you to stay consistent over the long haul. Because what often happens, especially around New Year's and we start these resolutions and all that stuff is we get really fired up, we're really motivated, all of that good stuff. And our expectations are so high that it just backfires because quickly we realize, hey, I'm not going to go to the gym five days a week or whatever it is you have. So being realistic, it's not being a Debbie Downer. It's not setting low expectations. It's just understanding where you are, what you're capable of in that moment. And then that platform sets you off to uh, be more consistent over the long haul versus unrealistic, you know, huge expectations. Quoting from chapter two of the practice of groundedness, You've got to accept and start where you are, not where you want to be, 
not where you think you should be, not where you dream of being, not where others think you should be, but where you are. I think that it is easy to say, I just said it, but very hard to do. And to me, this is one of the enormous values of coaching is if you're a type A pusher, you tend to, by nature, have an optimistic view of your performance and your sense of progress. And that's a good thing. That's what allows you to take productive risks and accomplish great things. But it also often leads you to not seeing situations so clearly. So um, a huge part of the value of coaching for already high performers is to help you see clearly so that you start from a place where sustainable progress is possible and where consistency is possible. So once you've done this, the next thing to think about is how do you progress, right? Because we've, we've tackled the problem of starting from a place that is beyond your capability or trying to go all out right off the bat and doing something that feels good for a day or a week, but could never be accomplished or sustained for a year. So you're taking these incremental steps and you want to make progress. Well, this gets back to our first book, Peak Performance. The mental model that we like to use here is stress plus rest equals growth. And you want the dose of the stress, the challenge, the stimulus to be appropriate. You want to follow it up with some rest and recovery so it can sink in. And then you want to rinse and repeat. And there's a few ways to think about the right dose of stress in domains that are not as simple as going from 20 pounds to 25 pounds or from five minute pace to 450 pace. So one is to think about where you are and where you want to go and just ask yourself, what's the next logical step? Another is to use a RPE or rate of perceived exertion scale on whatever it is that you're doing. And you want to shoot for RPE seven to eight. So for those that have had a career in athletics, RPE 10 is like you could not do another rep or set. You're going totally to the well. RPE seven or eight is comfortably uncomfortable. And that ought to be the right way to think about consistency. Um, Again, using this analogy from sports, but that certainly bears out in the traditional workplace and creativity and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I like to think of it in my creative works as I should feel a little bit of unease, but not anxiety. Because that, that unease tells me I'm on, the, I'm on the right path. So a lot of times you can listen to your body, understand that internal signal, and it can tell you if you're working too hard or not enough. The other side of the equation that we, that our podcast and our work is named after, the growth equation, is the rest part. And I think that this is so vital for consistency and something that we so often screw up, especially as pushers. We understand how to stress. Even if we sit here and say, okay, I'm not going a 9 or a 10 out of 10. I'm going 7 out of 10. We forget the other part of the equation, which is, the rest recovery, okay? Stepping back, allowing your brain to process, restore, allowing your body and physical pursuits to kind of, you know, reset, repair. The rest is where you grow and get better. If you don't have it, if you mess up that balance over the long haul, well, guess what? Your consistency is going to plummet. So really giving yourself that permission to take breaks, to step back, to rest, recover, and repair 
is vital for staying in it over the long haul. And often, like staying in it over the long haul is what separates like those who make it through those like difficult barriers or stoppage points where progress seems to slow. And those who don't, who kind of give up, quit, like burnout, all of that good stuff. So balancing that, that appropriate stress with the right amount and ample amount of rest, both in terms of physical, emotional, psychological, et cetera, is, is vital to staying consistent over the long haul. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. And really dialing in the appropriate stress. So you don't have to go up and try to swing for home runs. You just got to put the ball in play over and over and over again. And that sets you up for the best chance of long-term progress. Because trying to hit home runs all the time is physically and mentally very exhausting. (laughs) It is. And to keep... Keep that, I'm going to keep that baseball analogy going a little bit, okay? If you are a baseball player and you're a batter and you get a hit three out of ten times, like, you're an all-star. If you do that over your entire career, you're a Hall of Famer, most likely, if you can sustain that for 10, 15 plus years. So that includes a lot of failure. And I think one of the things that helps us deal with, again, this notion of what do we do when progress gets difficult is to be mentally and physically prepared to fail, to understand that it's all right, that you're going to go through setbacks, roadblocks, times when the work comes much more difficult than it used to. And that's okay. That's part of the process. Like, Learning how to lose is often thought of as like a bad thing in sports, but I think it's vital because if you learn how not to get too low on the lows, then you're able to reach and sustain those higher highs and get there more often. Yeah, and that becomes really important when observable progress slows down. And we should talk about that next. So... There's this saying that is very well-intentioned and in good faith that you just have to get 1% better every day. And generally, when people say that, what they mean is you just have to put the ball in play. So it's very much aligned with how we think about this. The problem is that sometimes people take that literally. And if you actually were to get 1% better every day, that means that you would get 100% better within 100 days. And that doesn't even include for compounding. So it's actually probably more like 70 days that you'd get 100% better. So that would mean that I go from squatting 350 pounds to 700 pounds in the next four months, three months, two and a half months. That's never going to happen. So I think that it is very important to realize that progress is nonlinear. When you are just starting something, it's possible to get more than 1% better every day. Once you've been doing that thing, the marginal gains are harder to come by. They are more marginal. So it is very easy to show up and stay consistent when everything is clicking and when you're getting that feedback in the form of results that are improving. It is much harder when 
that feedback is no longer there. So that is the point that often separates people that are good from great. And not just good from great on a competitive stage against others, but good from great yourself. I mean, it's the Pareto principle, right? 80% of the results come from 20% of the work, and then the last 20% are the hardest. And if you want to achieve your best, by definition, if you believe that principle, which we do, there's going to be a time period where you're putting in a lot of work and you're not seeing much sustainable progress. So the first thing is just to accept that this is going to happen. Then it's like, all right, well, how do you, I think there's two things to address here, Steve, and then I'll shut up. One, how do you stay motivated during those time periods when you're not seeing progress? And two, injecting some nuance in here, when do you know whether or not you should change what you're doing? Because on the one hand, quitting the minute that you stop seeing progress, you're not pushing through those plateaus. On the other hand, doing the same thing that you've always been doing when progress stops is some people say that's the definition of crazy. So let's tease these two things out. Let's first start with staying, assuming you're doing the right thing, staying motivated when the thrill and the dopamine hits of little victories in progress start to decrease and at times start to become invisible period. Yeah. So here I think it, it largely revolves around something we talked about on the goal podcast. So I won't go too far into it, but as the uh, process over outcomes framing, you know, when things get really difficult to make progress, if you can focus on the process on what you need to do to get better, not necessarily the, the measures, the times, the weight lifted, the sales, whatever the, the outcome is, that allows you to kind of recenter and not have to go down this, this path uh, where you're lacking motivation and all that stuff. So I think that's number, number one is process, 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 whenever it gets, it gets hard. The other thing that I would um, suggest here is get really clear on what it means to, to, to like achieve success or make progress. Because often, again, we think progress and we go to numbers and we know, go to out, uh, outcomes and all that stuff. But you can get really nuanced on, okay, I'm struggling. Like progress for me is maybe getting out the door while I'm struggling getting out the door and starting or in my writing world when I'm when I'm struggling it's okay you know I'm not getting this done I'm not making very much progress here like let's lower the bars so that I can I can almost shift things and get these little small hits of motivation or dopamine or whatever because I've shifted from trying to get 1% better to just trying to do something that used to come naturally. And if you can shift your goalpost a little bit there in terms of, you know, how you're defining progress and success, sometimes that gives you enough of that boost to keep you in it. For sure. I think the other thing is just surrounding yourself wisely with good people. It's a lot easier to do the hard thing when you're not getting that gratification and feedback of results. If you've got people around you that 
are playing the same game that are supportive, that get it, that will joke with you. Um, it's always so much easier to show up and keep pounding the stone when you're pounding it with other people. And even if it's not the same stone, y'all can be pounding different stones, but just other stone pounders. And I use that, um, metaphor because I think, I think that that is what those periods of non-visible progress are often like. If there's a big stone in order to get it to crack, you might have to pound it 30, 40, 50 times. And it only cracks on the 30, 40th or 50th pound. And that's what the New York Times covers, the Wall Street Journal covers, that's what's on the news, that's what you're interviewed about. But what people don't see is all those prior pounds when it seemed like nothing was happening, and all that happened is you were getting tired, your grip was getting sore, you were getting fatigued, you were wondering, is this thing ever going to break? And for the various stones that we're trying to crack in our life, it's a whole lot easier to keep pounding if you've got other people around you that are supportive and that get it and that have skin in the game themselves. So process over outcome, defining success on your own terms in a very process way, sticking to your core values, showing up, and then ideally trying to find a community to support you. All right, well, now what happens if you pound that stone and you're at pound 60, 70, 80, and it's still not breaking? And how do you know to wait until 60, 70, 80? So on the one hand, Constant switching of programs almost assures you that you'll never be successful. A lot of people do this. The minute the coach, the minute the program, the minute the approach stops working, they go to the freaking message boards of whatever niche they're in and they find something new. Not a good path to success. The flip side is putting your head down and just doing the thing forever. Well, that might not work because you might actually have the wrong approach. So... Let's try to hold this non-dually and to the best of our ability, discuss how people can think about this paradox. Because shit, we've had podcasts where we've praised quitting and we've, has, we've had podcasts where we, we praise grit and sticking to it. And this is really tough. And we're not talking about quitting the pursuit. To be clear, we're talking about changing approaches. So you're trying to sell a book, you're trying to deadlift 800 pounds, you are trying to lead a team of 30 people instead of 20. You have confidence in approach A. It's sound. It's evidence-based, yada, yada, yada. Do you stop after two months, six months, six years? How do you think about that? It's really, really tough. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the tough nut to crack here. The way I like to think of it, my mental model is whenever something, whenever I'm stuck, but still you know, plowing head. I like to think of it as if I've done it long enough where it's that 60, 70 pounding of that stone and I'm not seeing progress and nothing is changing, then I like to take a very small portion of what I'm doing and explore or dabble, right? Dabble with something slightly different, taking a different approach, not throwing out everything that I've done, not throwing out my training program or my my marketing approach or whatever it is, but taking a small part and start to dabble and explore and change something. So the way I like to think of it is I don't want to go full off and wander into the woods. I want a secure home base platform off of which to experiment. And I need to do these like mini experiments to see if you know, I should change something 
or if I should just kind of stick with and, and, and stay course. And that's a really hard kind of thing to do. And the time course of, of, of events obviously matters. If you've been trying something, beating your head against the wall for a very long time, then that tells you more information. But what you're trying to do is get kind of clarity on, on whether the right approach is, is leading you in the correct direction or whether taking these other approaches um, is a bet is a better, better better path or opens up a better way. Yeah, I agree. I think also um, being okay with outsourcing that decision if you have to, because it's really hard when you're so close to the thing. So if there are a group of other people that you really trust that know the content of what you're trying to do quite well, I think it can be really helpful to ask that, Hey, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm concerned about. Concerned about quitting this approach too soon, but I'm also concerned about sticking with something that's never going to work too long. And oftentimes other people can give you a better sense of which of those two roads to take better than yourself. Um, I think again, the value of having a coach now, obviously it gets hard when you're stuck with a coach and you're like, do I stay with this coach or not? But most people don't get there. That tends to only happen at the very, very, very high levels of performance. So I think that those are good principles. And you know, there's no easy answer. If there was, we would give it to you. This is one of those things where just having a language to talk about it and a mental model for understanding that there's two ways to get into trouble. One is quitting too soon. One is sticking with something too long. That's probably as good as you're going to get. And then over time in your life through experimentation, you start to develop a feel of when to stick it out versus when to, to, to quit. I still think most people quit too soon on most things. Again, assuming that you've already found the activity that you like. So we're not talking about whether or not it's the right activity. We're talking about progress in an activity. And if you're using an evidence-based program that has worked for other people before you, um, my bias is that most people still quit too early. I would agree. I think, I think there's, I'm going to bring some nuance in here. I think that most people quit too early, but I think when you are like obsessed and rigid in something, then you probably quit too late. Yes. So a a lot of it is having that self-awareness to understand where you are. So I'll give the, you know, the example from my own experience or life. If I looked at running, right, I probably tried to keep running at a very high level for too long because I was like obsessed, like it was my identity, all those things. If you look at other avenues, especially like when I first got into writing, I probably gave up on certain things, certain projects much too soon because, you know, I got rejected in this this thing or this article or book or whatever have you um, because it wasn't it wasn't my kind of obsession or passion or whatever you want to call it so a lot of it a lot of it is like stepping back and being like how how I'll use the word obsessed or how deeply intertwined is my sense of self with this thing if it's deeply intertwined we probably stick with it too long or I should say, have a propensity to default to grit 
if it's deeply intertwined. If it's not, if we have some space or a lot of space between us and the thing or the pursuit, then often we don't stick with it long enough. I agree. And there are some, there's, there's many roads to Rome that are effective in most pursuits. The challenge becomes when you don't stand any given road long enough. Um, and again, I do think that that happens, that happens more often than not, particularly when observable progress is, is missing, when you're no longer getting 1% better every day, but maybe you're getting one one hundredth of a percent better every day. So then the last principle that I have around practicing consistency in your own life is this notion of taking your work very seriously, but not taking yourself too seriously at all. And I think it is so freaking important because doing anything that is a challenge and sustaining it and making progress, especially if it is something that's pushing you to get better or feel better or be healthier, that's going to be hard enough. The work itself is going to be hard enough. If you layer on connecting your entire identity to it, being super hard on yourself, acting like it's do or die, man, that makes it even freaking harder. And even when it is do or die, I have no research behind this. So this is a, a, a this is just a hunch. I'm sounding like Joe, Re- Joe Rogan here. I've got no research. It's just a hunch. Don't listen to me. But in all seriousness, don't listen to me. But my hypothesis is that even when it comes to something that is life or death, like quitting smoking, I think that if you can have a humor attitude about it, and again, take the work of quitting seriously, but not yourself, I think you probably have a higher chance. And it's definitely true for the stuff that we coach towards and we talk about, whether it is leading teams better, doing better creative work, thinking more analytically, lifting weights, running faster, all that stuff. You've got to be able to laugh at yourself. Otherwise, you're never going to last. Yeah, you know, don't listen. We laugh at ourselves all the time. (laughs) Don't listen to me as I have no research behind that either. But I would I would suspect you're right, Brad, Um, because if you look at either the research, if you look at how people work, it's like often like if we frame things as like do or die, succeed or you're a failure, it just puts us in this kind of fear of this fear mode, right? And this, we take it too seriously. It becomes like this thing that, you know, is hovering over us, holding us down instead of having the freedom to perform or change or whatever have you. So I think the more we can take that burden off of ourselves, the better. And one of the best ways to take that burden off of ourselves is to realize that, you know, as you said, take the work seriously, but not yourself, because, you know, we don't know what we're doing entirely. No one has any uh, clue. As we linked to, um, actually, in last week's newsletter, um, we linked to a philosopher's paper, basically saying life is absurd, and we're better off realizing like the absurdity in life and not going down this depths of despair and existential crisis and all of this stuff. Um, or you, it, it, because like, if you just see the irony and the absurdity in life, you're probably better off. Unless you're like me and thinking about how 
absurd life is then makes you go into existential crisis and despair. <laughs> well, you know, that's why this podcast isn't mount- meant to help you, Brad. You've got you've got coaches and therapists for that. That so. is that is the truth. Um, you know, I think there's one more thing, and this probably deserves its own episode. So maybe we'll talk about it next week. But let's just tee it up. And it's this notion of marrying self-discipline with self-compassion. And this is a theme throughout a lot of our writing, but we've never talked about it on the podcast, at least not in any detail. And we'll preview it for next week. Are you okay talking about this next week, Steve? We're making this decision on the fly here, folks. Oh, man. And if we don't now, we're screwed. Um, yeah, we, we can. Let's do it. All right. So you tend to have these two polar extremes. You've got the Jocko Wilnick show people my watch that I wake up at 4.30 every morning to deadlift and blah, blah, blah. Crush it. David Goggins, self-discipline. Nothing's free. You got to work really hard. And then you got this other camp of self-love. Everything is structural and environmental. Don't be too hard on yourself. Be kind to yourself, so on and so forth. And very rarely does anyone say, actually, for 99.999% of things in life, you need both. You need to have really good self-discipline and work ethic and do hard things. And you need to be really kind to yourself. Because if you're not kind to yourself, you're never going to last. Because doing hard things is hard. All kinds of research shows that when you fail, the more harshly and negatively you judge yourself, the longer it takes you to get back on the bandwagon. And even when you do, the lower your chance of success. So it's not woo-woo to have self-compassion, much like it's not a fake tough thing to have self-discipline. They work together, and if you're going to be consistent at any kind of sustainable change or progress, it's going to require a lot of self-discipline, and it's also going to require self-compassion. And for most people that are listening to our show, people interested in our work and in performance, the self-discipline probably comes easier than the self-compassion. I think you're spot on, and I know I know we'll talk about this, but like the reality is this should be apparent but it's not like when failure hits like we are our worst critics <laughs> and you can sit there and be like oh we need toughness or or immense discipline to get through this but that doesn't recognize the reality that failure setbacks adversity like hits all of us and we all have like horrible inner voices at at different times and having that that compassion that recognition like aids and helps you get through that stuff. There's all sorts of good research in high level athletes, right? And high level performers that shows that uh, self-compassion allows us to be more adaptive and, you know, perform at a higher level over the long haul. So I'm right there with you. I mean, and you can't, I, I think it gets back to something else we've talked about on other podcasts, which is like doing hard things and real things and all that stuff, which ties into this discipline. But like, you've got to, you can't just have self-compassion and be like, okay, I'm going to be like extremely kind to myself without like challenging yourself and doing difficult things. 
um, as well. And you can't do difficult things without having some compassion when you inevitably fail because you are going to fail or go through some really low point that like hits at your, your innermost being. Yep. A hundred percent. Um, couldn't agree more. I think that that is worthy of its own episode. Maybe not just self-compassion, but maybe talking about failure, broaden it out a little bit so we can fill at least 25, 30 minutes. Although we never seem to have a problem. I love talking about failure. We have failed quite often. Yeah. We fail more than we succeed. It's just that people tend to only talk about the success. So there's a huge selection bias and, um, and what gets reported and what gets talked about. No one talks about their failures, at least not as much as their, their successes. But something that we didn't fail at was taking your all's feedback. So we appreciate it. Towards the end of the year, we got a little ranty on our podcast. And we heard from a handful of people that love the rants and said more. And we heard from a handful of people that said, stop with the rants. We're coming for the evidence-based information and um, a little bit of banter is okay, but too much, um, you know, railing on Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson is not what we're here for. So we are listening. This episode and the past one, we did very little of that. For those that are wondering where it went, it will be back. Those bros can only go so long before they really piss us off. Um, and we can't make everyone happy. So we're going to stay true to ourselves. But we understand the people that are over that, and we understand the people that take it as a breath of, a breath of fresh air. So we're doing our both our best to hold both those things at once. We're going to balance our podcast. Yes. That's Stress it. plus rest equals growth. Um, rant plus, what's the opposite of a rant? Rant plus elegance equals the growth equation podcast. How about that? There it is. There's our new formula. You heard it here first, folks. On the fly. This is why Brad comes up with uh, all the catchy slogans and terms. Yeah. So thanks for keeping us in check. Um, we got two priorities here. We want to continue to rail on Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson, and we don't want to become Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson. So we really take your feedback seriously. So um, thanks for keeping us on the path. All right, everybody. And until next time, again, if you want to support the podcast, keep it ad-free so that we don't have to hawk supplements or crazy diets or what have you to lose our minds like the aforementioned. Um, then join our Patreon group. You know, join our community. www.thegrowthequation or sorry, www.patreon.com slash the growth equation get on board get all sorts of good stuff support our work we really appreciate it and as you've just evidenced we listen to your feedback we take it to heart and we try and get better you know what steve if you were to grow a goatee you kind of look like jordan peterson oh man i i'm just gonna ignore that comment i don't i know think i'm gonna, gonna go on an all meat diet and use all the supplemental anti-aging help I can get. And I'll look more like Joe Rogan in maybe our Halloween episode. Maybe we just keep all the ranting in, in our Halloween episode. You dress up as Joe Rogan, or you dress up as Jordan Peterson and I dress up as Joe Rogan. 
you know, I have the partial Canadian in me, thanks to my my mom, and you have the bald head, so maybe maybe we'll get it done. Maybe this is our future. All right. Well, until then, uh, have a wonderful week, and we'll catch you next week with an episode um, that we decided on today. So we'll talk all about failure. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation Podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at bstalberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.